Good morning, Father. Here we are, and we need you. We always do. Every moment of every day. Sometimes we're too distracted to know, but right now we share a moment. Right now we are present, not just in a place, but in a shared moment with each other and with you. We step into an eternal place. And Father, we need what only you have. We need comfort. We need strength. We need peace. We need power. We need wisdom. There is so much we need. And unless you give it, we won't get it. So I pray, Lord God, that you help us to come to you and anticipate the gifts from our Father. To enjoy what you have to share, which is so much better than what we even think we need. So walk us, Lord, today into a valley, but out on a mountaintop. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> so if this is your first Sunday at Ordinary Faith... We normally like to cut up a little bit, and I'm not saying I won't, but we are talking about grief, and I don't know any grief jokes. That's the only one I know right there. So, um, so today we walk a path into a little bit of sadness, and we do that because we need to. Not necessarily because we want to. So, I really appreciate what Tammy said earlier. So, let me share you a little bit about what I do. I get asked that question all the time. What do you do? My answer is nothing, really. I'm just semi-retired. <laughs> yeah, that's what I show up on Sundays. I work one day a week and then I work too long. Think about it. Okay, there you go. One of... I love what I do. I don't love everything I have to do, but I love what I do. And um, so this part, the teaching, the Bible calls it the preaching, caruso, the, the expression of the good news. I love it, but sometimes it weighs very, very heavy. Sometimes as you prepare uh, not just the preparation part is, is a lot of work, but it's done far in advance in my case. It's the actual delivery part that you begin to step into a holy place with not just God, but with you. And as I prayed, we step into a moment together, what I would call an eternal moment. And there's a weight of that and a responsibility of that. And today is very very heavy in a sense because we are talking about something that we do not want to talk about and we're going to look at it in some ways and and we're going to look at ourselves in some ways that are not comfortable okay i realize i meddle a lot i know that i don't just preach and i i get into your business and tell you things you don't want to hear i know that and i appreciate your patience and the grace you give me as i try to carefully tread the landmines that are our own hearts 
But then, you know me, sometimes I just like, nah, let's just blow this thing up and see what happens. And so today I'm talking about something very dear and it's something that all of you, all of you, all of you are dealing with. Every single one of you. You know, the wonderful thing is we have like three professional counselors in this church and I think I can fill you guys' dockets today when I'm done. <laughs> so, uh, so we talk about this attitude of grief. Um, Ken Doka coined a phrase, disenfranchised grief, about two decades ago. And this is his, a quote from his book. It says, grief that persons experience... I may have a little trouble today, so just be graceful. Grief that persons experience when they incur a loss that is not or cannot be openly acknowledged, socially sanctioned, or publicly mourned. What does that mean? It means that we have losses in life that others do not see as worthy of grief. That they do not understand that we are grieving. In fact, there are losses in life that we do not understand that we are grieving. That we are going through things, and that's why I call them losses. Anything you can lose has to be grieved. So it could be something that's not worthy of grief. It could be the, the, your relationship to the loss might be stigmatized, meaning that people might not understand that you were even part of that person's life or that thing that was lost. Uh, if someone was lost through death, the mechanism of death could be stigmatized and people not understand it. Suicide, overdose death, those kinds of things. People are afraid to have those kinds of discussions. By the way, just a little bonus here. The church in America and, and we at Ordinary Faith, we have to learn to have the hard discussions. Freedom comes through having the hard discussions. Freedom does not come through avoiding them until we find out we're not actually living our lives. And so uh, the person could be, that's grieving might not be recognized as a griever. Like you could lose someone that's a coworker at work and people wouldn't understand why you would be grieving that loss. Um, and then the way people grieve sometimes is stigmatized, meaning that some of you are very, um, I want, you, you express, you're an expresser. I'm not going to say dramatic, but you express things. Some of you are not. Some of you are stoics. Some of you are hard to read. And so no one knows what's going on between your ears. And so it's, it's hard to share those things. So um, I want to list a few things. Well, actually, I have a quote my son sent me. I want to make sure I share with you today that uh, my, I, all of my sons have their, are going through challenging times. Everyone is going through challenging times. Uh, one of my sons and I are in a fairly deep discussion that's been going on for the last several months, and we've been talking about this, and I want to share with you a quote he sent me. But some of the examples of the things that we grieve, I want to give these to you because I, I have to give you, you need permission to grieve. And you may have losses that are disconnected from their causes, and when that happens, you experience the pain of grief, but you can't, you can't actually experience grief itself. And so you can never let it go. And to me, that's the easiest definition of grief. Grief is about letting go. In fact, to put it in, in spiritual terms, grief is about dealing with the cross, going into a tomb, and resurrecting 
out the other side. That's the process of grief from a Christian perspective. And so it is about letting go and finding what I call your new day, finding your resurrection day. But here's some examples of of grief that people are carrying around and they don't, it's, their grief has been disenfranchised, disconnected from its cause. So some examples, infertility. Some of you have gone through that battle in your lives and are maybe in the middle of it now. And you are losing as you walk that journey. But it's not, it's stigmatized. People are like, well, that's no big deal. Why do we live our lives so much according to the lens of people who can never understand what's going on between our ears. Miscarriage, stillborn, abortion, all of those. Dis- can, grief gets disconnected from the cause, and when it gets disconnected, you cannot walk the path of grief. Loss of those things, loss of relationships, family conflict that causes a loss of those, a move I don't know anyone in Rock Springs who hasn't moved. <laughs> Some of them moved away and came back, but still, you know, move. A divorce. Losing someone in ways that others don't understand, like HIV or homicide. The, the, people can't wrap, wrap their heads around these things. Other griefs, loss of health brings with it a grief. Loss of independence. As, as we age, and, and I'm walking that path with my own parents right now, as their independence is beginning to have drift, they're beginning to lose some of it, it's a battle for them. And I greatly sympathize. Loss of a job. Even sentimental objects. Loss through substance abuse. Runaway children. Alzheimer's. And dementia. Sorry. Bottom line, I don't know why God put this sermon on today. I wish I could tell you why it matters so much, but it is what it is. All losses, all losses have to be grieved. They have to be grieved. And we are in a world of grief today. Our American way, our Wyoming way, we cowboy up. We mount that horse, we head down that trail, and we try to forget it. And we try to not go back to it because you just can't walk through life being sad all the time. The problem is, that's exactly what we're doing because we never actively and willingly enter the process of grief. As long as you keep burying those griefs, and they are not dealt with, as long as you keep putting those losses in, in out of sight so you don't have to look at them, all you're really doing is packing and compacting more and more and more sadness into your own heart. There's a passage in Proverbs that says laughter can conceal a heavy heart, but when laughter ends, the grief remains. This is the American condition, and it is the Christian condition today. We have all of these unfelt, unentered losses where we have not grieved them, and now we are walking through lives as shadows of ourselves. Afraid to feel the pain, searching for some kind of laughter, some kind of joy, unable to find it because our hearts are so full of sadness, we have no room for joy. 
Does that make sense? How many of you, don't raise your hands or respond in any way, but how many of you in the last year have said to yourselves, I don't know how to be happy anymore? There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. There's something wrong with the culture in which we live that forbids us to grieve. I have, I have walked through grief with many friends throughout the years. What offends me the most about the way Americans deal with grief today is that I know people who have lost someone they've been married to their entire lives, someone that's their brother or their sister or dear friend, and they, they get through the funeral and literally within weeks, and sometimes at the funeral, people are just saying, well, you just got to move on. I'm trying not to get angry. No, you can't move on until... You grieve. And grief takes time. It takes time. And we have stuff. If we were honest with ourselves today, if we began to take an inventory of our losses of just the last three years, we would, I bet all of us could list scores of things that we have lost and we have never taken the time to let go of them. And I know, this is how, we, this is how Americans and, and Westerners do life. Well, it's just one more thing. Put that back in the cart. One more thing. Back in the cart. I'm going to tell you something. Eventually the cart overloads and breaks. And that's when you have meltdowns and breakdowns and psychological issues. People's minds are not stable at this point in history. Because there is so much pain and so much sadness. I'm going to tell you, one of the griefs, I'll throw this in, that we never recognize is the grief of an expectation that was lost. I mean, you you expected to get that job. You expected to retire and, and be able to spend the last however many years of your life doing what you wanted to do. You expected your health to, to stay there for you. You expected that marriage to last. You expected your kids to live in a certain way. List off the expectations. And I'm going to tell you, one by one, bing, 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 they go down. And you can't just go. You can't just go. Well, that's how life is. Just because that's how life is doesn't mean you just bury it and try to carry on. Okay, I'm going to leave my zombie reference out of it. I'm going to let that one go this one time. I'm grieving my zombie reference. Okay, moving right along. I say our fear of sadness robs us of our joy. I know know some of the thoughts because I... As I was preparing this, I'm just thinking through the stuff of the Lord, the things that's gone through my own mind. We say things like, well, everyone's struggling. Yes, everyone is struggling, but just because everyone is struggling does not mean that you're not struggling and that there's somehow it's not okay for you to struggle. Mine's not worse than anyone else's. It may not be worse, but it's still worse. And yours is what you have to carry. Yours is what you have to let go of. Yours 
is your, your burden and what you need strength for. There are questions like, well, what can I even do? I can't just go around feeling sorry for myself. And no, you can't feel sorry for yourself. That's not what grief is. But these are things that we say to ourselves. And I, you know, there's a psalm. I, if, you're not, if, if you're not reading the psalms pretty regular, I want to recommend you to read a lot of the psalms. I love David because he was a manic depressive, I'm pretty sure. And it's, as you read the Psalms, you, you find out, here's a guy who struggled with depression, a guy who struggled with anger. I mean, he has Psalms, like he wants to like chop people up and get rid of their bodies kind of stuff. Not like you've ever felt that way before. And as you read the Psalms, there's one Psalm where he says, he's talking to his soul. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is having a conversation with his own soul. And what you need to understand from that is having a conversation with your own soul is a healthy practice. And he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why do you despair? And so we need healing, and grief will heal you. So here's Jesus. And here's what he says as he introduces grief as an attitude. God blesses you who weep now. For in due time, you will laugh. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you is evil because you follow the Son of Man. When that happens, be happy. Yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets the same way. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now, for your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds, for their ancestors also praised the false prophets. So to begin to grieve, I want to give you two things to grieve and a place to put your trust. The first thing we need to grieve today is we need to grieve our own sins. We need to start there. We need to grieve our own sins. And what does that mean, Michael? And it sounds really uncomfortable. Yeah, pretty much going to be just that. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> our deepest and greatest grief in life we're born into. And this is something we need to understand. This is what Christianity answers. This is what the gospel answers, is this problem within us called sin. So I grew up in Tennessee. Well, we moved around some, so my accent isn't as bad as it could be, believe it or not. However, the next Sunday, uh, I'm, we're going to Tennessee this week. The next time you listen to me talk, I will be quite twangy. I'm just saying. You have to be, you have to learn to speak a language while you're there. They won't listen to you. So it's true. Uh, but it does crack me up. I went into, the last time I went to a convenience store in Fulton, Kentucky, this, I just walked in and the, the lady behind the counter said, well, hello there, honey, how you doing? And I'm like, <laughs> so we are born under the curse of humanity. So growing up in the South, what that means, uh, why I wanted to share that was, it's the Bible Belt, man. I mean, people in the South are Christian as a culture, not as a commitment. I don't know if you know the difference in that. One of the reasons I love the West is it's, it's half the work as it was in the South. 
What do I mean? In the South, I have to convince someone they're lost before I can help them get found, okay? In the West, people are like, they either don't care or they're mad at you anyway. It's fine. It's okay. I like it, though. <laughs> it's honest, all right? And so, uh, so, so, the, so I met a lot of what we used to call good old boys along the way. Good old boys. There's even a Southern Gospel song about this particular phenomenon. And, and here's what it is. And I run into people here that, that feel the same way. And it's, it's like this. Man, I'm a good guy. And I, I, do, I know lots of amazing men and women in our community who, are, who do so many good things. And, and you look at them, and you, if you measure them by their neighbors, by other people in the community, yeah, they're, they're good old boys. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't die on a cross to save good people. He died on a cross to save bad people. And God says that by his standard, we're all bad. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's everyone on this planet's starting point. A place not just of being born into sin, but here's where you have to, you have to ratchet this down we're not just born into sin. We are rebels. Think about the condition of mankind, guys. God, in his goodness, created this amazing planet. Gave us all these wonderful things. Put Adam and Eve in this garden that was perfect. It was good. I mean, the only thing that wasn't good was before Eve got there, God saw Adam in the garden and said, that is not good for him to be by himself without supervision. <laughs> We, we better put someone there who can keep him out of trouble. I think it was right after Adam named the platypus. It's like, right, I mean, God's like, here, name all the animals, and we're doing great, and all of a sudden, platypus. And I'm like, oh, no, he's got to have some help. That's my opinion. We're in the garden. God's made everything beautiful. He says to Adam and Eve, everything's perfect. There are two trees there. They need to be there. The one is the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch it. Trust me for that one. Don't touch it. The other one's the tree of life. That one's all good. Enjoy it as much as you want. Enjoy all the fruit as much as you want. That's the goodness of God. God created the world, gave it to Adam, and the very first thing Adam does is kick God out of it. Rebels against God. You say, well, he just had a piece of fruit. You don't understand the, the, the dynamics of what's happening if you think that's all that it was. This was a rebellion against God that passed on to Cain, who killed his brothers, that passed on to a generation that God ended up destroying. This is rebel. And you say, well, man, I, I haven't rebelled, rebelled against God. Well, listen, Adam kicked him out of the garden. Then God sent his son to earth, and we killed his son and kicked him off the planet. Rebellion, man. And it's not just Adam. It's us. We, didn't, we weren't just born under a curse. We actively rebel against God today. And we do it every time that we declare ourselves as our own God by the actions of ignoring everything he says. Does that make sense? You have to grieve this. We are born in a messed up place and we've messed up ourselves. That's what the gospel is an answer to. We, we haven't just rebelled, we have harmed. I'm a dad, have an amazing wife, eight incredible sons, and I'm a grump. I know it sounded like an AA meeting there, right? Just up there. 
fun. Anyway, I don't know about you. All I can tell you about me. The closer you get to me, the more you meet the real me. Right? Uh, the real me isn't always a nice guy. Okay? Oh, yeah, I can put on that face and that smile. and I, I don't try real hard. I'm more transparent nowadays than I've ever been. But still, you know, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I try to be nice. To everybody. Here's when it became glaringly clear to me. It was early in my ministry. I'd been pastoring about five years. And I'd put in Sundays back then were Sunday morning, Sunday night. We had Wednesday night services. We had Saturday visitations. I'm telling you, just all the meetings of church were like 40 hours. And then you had all the other things. So it's Sunday night. I had I delivered two messages for the day, two unique messages for the day. I had shaken hands all day long, shake them in, shake them up, shake them down, and shake them out. You know, that was... That was it. Done it twice. And I'd shaken the last hand and the, they went out the door and I, I, I went out of the back of the church and got in the car with my family and one of my precious children who's like, they're all under five at that time. I think we had four. No, they're under eight at the time. And I think we had four. And one of my boys asked me a question and I snapped. And my wife, who is also the Holy Spirit on occasion... She said, you have been nice to all those people that you barely know all day, and you just snapped at our son. So that felt pretty good. <laughs> and that's when I remembered. Sometimes the people we hurt most are the ones who get the closest. I've had grumpy days. I've snapped. I've said awful things. I've hurt people. And there are consequences to that. Not always consequences that I experience, right? Sometimes I snap and I hurt someone in such a way that they're the ones who carries that pain and that consequence. Sometimes for the rest of their life just because I'm their dad or I'm their pastor or I'm a leader in the community or I'm a boss or whatever it is. So what am I trying to tell you? We need to grieve our sins because we have rebelled against God personally. We need to grieve our sins because we have hurt people. We like to think, we really like to think that we are nicer than God. We do. We're like, man, if I was in charge, there would be no pain and suffering here. Do you know how, what it would take to get there? The only way there could be no pain and suffering if you were God is for you to be a tyrant and to force everyone to do things your way. No one could have freedom. God's smarter than you are. Every day you should wake up and thank God that he's God and that he's good. You don't want the job. I love you, but you would be terrible at it. We walk through life with this imagination that we're basically good. And we're not. And we have to grieve that. I wish we were. If the comparison were the homeless guy down in the gutter... Maybe I'm better than that guy. I don't know. If the comparison was uh, some guys down in the jail right now, if that's the standard, maybe I'm a step above that in some way. But that's not the standard. The standard is a guy named Jesus who was nailed to a cross and died for someone else. He's the only not guilty person who ever lived. And then he rose from the dead. That's the standard. 
okay? So we need to grieve that. That's the beginning of the Christian faith, by the way, is grieving our own sins. We also need to grieve our world. The Bible says in Romans 8.20, against its will. Interesting. That God should take Adam's sin that corrupted the entire planet that God had created. And here God puts it through Paul's pen, says against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. The whole, all of creation is groaning for Jesus to return. It's groaning for the establishment, the reestablishment of God's active and present and visible rule upon this planet. All of creation's groaning for it. Then I want to jump over real quick and I'll explain how these are connected in just a second. In Nehemiah, Nehemiah was uh, in the king's court of Babylon. And at the time when God's punishment, I guess, or God's uh, justice for Israel's rebellion had come to an end, he had done the math and figured it out. And he starts praying. And this is how he prays. He says, listen to my prayer. Talking to God. Look down and see me praying. Hey, for your people Israel, I confess that we, we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. What, what is this? This is Nehemiah stepping into a place of grief for his nation and confessing sins that are not his own. Think about this for a second, because I think this is the path to revival, is repentance. And I don't think that, I think repentance doesn't start with a broken, corrupt world. I think repentance starts with the people of God. I think it's up to us to get, to lay our hands on the altar, so to speak, if I could use that Old Testament reference, and if it doesn't make sense to you, don't worry. If we could lay our hands on the altar and we could repent for our world. You're like, it wouldn't change them, Michael. Our job isn't to change them. Our job is to lay hold of the altar of God and let God be God. And let God do what God does. Maybe if we get out of God's way and do what we're supposed to do, God, it would open up doors so that God could flow more freely on this earth in which we live. So let us start to grieve our world. It's a broken place. There's stuff on this planet that should not, should not be here. There are things that make me, it makes me angry when people talk about how civilized and modern we are. And I'm like, do you know what's going on behind the veneer of modern in our world? Do you, know, do you realize slavery exists all over the planet? Even in the United States of America, people are being forced to do things against their will and don't own their own lives. Oppression exists here. People are oppressed because of their skin color, their background, their station in life, their gender. Pick something. Someone else is mad about it for some crazy reason. That shouldn't be here. Condemnation of the innocent while the guilty are free. So many have more than they will ever use while others will never have enough. 
There's chronic, sudden, and terminal illness. People are sick and getting sicker. And on top of that, there is a supernatural torment and affliction that is just infecting our world. This place is twisted. It's broken. Not, and those things are here, and things that need to be here are not here. Safety. Security. Peace. Love. You can't even get that stuff here anymore unless someone from another kingdom imports it. This world is a broken place and we can grieve it. It's a corrupt place. And it's a condemned place. Many people have this imagination that they are waiting for some judgment. And there is definitely an appointment. I don't know what people imagine exactly. I've talked to folks who've presented different things to me. Kind of a, my general conglomeration of the things I've heard is, well, there's a judgment day, and one day someone, God, is going to weigh my good deeds against my bad deeds, and then uh, we'll find out what happens. That sounds like a terrible way to live. And if you can know, then you should know. But that's, that's me. You do you. That's not how it works. No one is waiting for condemnation. No one is waiting. This is what, I believe it was John the Baptist who actually said this. He said in John 3.36, Anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Has it. Not will have it. Has it. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. That's something we should, we should grieve. People are not waiting to be judged. They're not waiting to be condemned. They were born condemned. You say, that's depressing. That's why we should grieve it. This is not what the Father wants. This is just the reality. And this is the reality. That's why Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. When we begin to walk into those kinds of things and we begin to grieve them. And it, in grieving those realities of our sin and the, the brokenness and corruption and condemnation of our world, in grieving those, it moves us into a, another possibility. Because you see, the entire world has already been judged. It's not waiting on a judgment. It's already been judged. And in that what we can do is learn to stop loving it. Stop loving the world. Stop needing the world and start grieving the world. This is how John put it. Don't love the world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you don't have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So we need to grieve this place. It's a broken place. It's a we need to do everything we can to make our, the passing of those around us, their, their journey in life, as gentle as possible. But the reality is, it's judged, it's condemned, it's fading, it's ending. And we should be sad. Not only is it okay to be sad, we need to be sad. If we could stop, stop wanting this world and stop needing this world and start grieving this world, it would free us from all the sadness and depression that this world gives. We turn to the world for answers, and it doesn't have any. So what do we do? 
We grieve our sins. We grieve the, the world. Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord? Jesus says. When you don't do what I say. I promise I took this out of the Bible. This is not me being mean, okay? What? You say I'm Lord, but you don't do what I say. I'll show you what it's like when someone comes to me and listens to my teaching and follows it. It's like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on a solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it's well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house on the ground without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. I know, this is what I know. I know that everything Jesus tells us to do does not make sense. That's what I know. I realize that as you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you read his words, it, it goes in the face of everything we have been raised to believe. I know this. It's not easy for me either. <clears throat> I mean, seriously, reading, and we're going to talk about this in our next series, lo- learning, like loving your enemies and blessing those who curse you. That doesn't make sense. I want to kneecap those who <laughs> just wing them a little bit or something, you know? I get that. And Jesus is telling me things like to give and, and love and to bless. That flies in the face of everything that you know on earth. That is not how things work here. Jesus says that's how things work in the kingdom. Jesus says that the kingdom supersedes and overcomes everything on earth. And part of our mission is to bring an import from the kingdom to here. That's what we do. So you can walk through life and you can just dismiss everything Jesus says. Oh, it's archaic. Wisdom doesn't work today. You can do that. When you do that, you make yourself your own God. Just so you know. Let's just be straight up. You're saying, I know more than the guy who rose from the dead. I, I understand. I have a better understanding of the universe than the guy who created it. Sounds pretty arrogant to me, but you do you. Or, we can trust Jesus. Jesus was a revolutionary, but not in the way many people today like to credit him as one. Cracks me up how that people try to use Jesus for their own political motivations today. Uh, Cracks me up, ticks me off a little bit. They're like, man, Jesus cleansed the temple. We're going to go cleanse City Hall. I bet that'll work out great. Let me get my camera. I'm going to follow you. Here's the funny thing about what Jesus did at the temple. There was a temple in Jerusalem where God was to be worshipped. There was a Roman praetorium where everything but God was worshipped. Jesus had two choices of which one to cleanse. And he didn't cleanse the praetorium. He cleansed the temple. If there's a table in this house that needs to be flipped, it's mine. It's yours. Not City Hall. That's the kind of revolutionary Jesus is. Because Jesus isn't trying to change something that is condemned. He's letting that end. By the way, Rome isn't around anymore. Not 
that government system anyway. Jesus knew it wasn't worth his investment. What was worth his investment were you and me. That's why he cleansed the temple. So that we would have access to God unfettered by the corruption of this world. Are you going to trust you based on what you've learned from culture, based on a bunch of lenses you've received throughout your life that are corrupted by people's insecurities, fears, and sins? Or are you going to trust Jesus? Because what Jesus is saying and we're focusing on today is He's saying, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted, for they're going to laugh. There's a, they're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death so... It, David articulated it. They're going to walk through that valley, but they're not going to go alone. They're going to have the shepherd with them to lead them to still waters and into green pastures. They're going to come out the other side alive and strong and resurrected. That's what grief is for. Grief is your valley, the shadow of death that walks you to your new day. Today, what I'm asking you to do is to ask yourself, oh my soul, what have I lost? What have I lost this year, the last two years, the last three years? Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's the, a child or a hope of a child. Maybe it was a sum of money that was set aside for something important like a retirement or something. Maybe it was a relationship. I don't know. The losses could be anything. It could be an expectation. It could be a friend. I've lost a lot. And I feel like I'm pretty blessed. I don't feel like I've lost near what others have. I need you to take those losses and take account of them. I don't want to, Michael. Every time I think about them, they make me sad. I'm telling you, the only way to unload the weight of sadness is to grieve it. And the only way to grieve it is to connect it to what actually happened. Does that make sense? Let's bow our heads for a minute. Man, I tell you what, <laughs> I've already listed some possible losses, but I know I can't even, I, I wish the Lord would give me the one exactly that you need to hear. So Holy Spirit, I'm going to ask you to speak into the hearts in this room. Speak the loss. Speak the weight, the pain. Speak it into these hearts. To every heart that's willing to, to do what you say and, and, and mourn something. If you know what your loss is, or maybe you have five or ten, and you're sitting there, and we're in a moment together. We're in a moment together with God. We're in an eternal moment. And you have your, your little mental accounting of what some losses are. And you can certainly take this exercise home later and write these things down. But you're in this moment. You have a few of them. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to feel it. I want you to feel it. And I know it takes courage. I want you to admit that it's a loss. 
It wasn't what you wanted. This was not the path you wanted to walk. It's not okay. It was bad. And it's out of your control. This is the valley of the shadow of death. This is where the losses accumulate in the shadows of our mind. But when we can see them and we can connect them to the loss, the expectation, the sacrifice, we can feel them. And when we can feel them, we can say, Jesus, I need you. I can't do this alone. I can't walk by myself through this valley. I need you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so you feel the pain, and Jesus shows up. Maybe it's a Ted moment of lightness upon your heart. Maybe you actually sense that he's standing with you or embracing you. Maybe you can see him walking with you through what you have lost and through the sorrow. At the end of this valley that we walked through together this morning is a beautiful ray of light. Jesus is walking us out of the sadness and into his joy. There's a psalm that says that joy comes in the morning. Sadly, we must endure the night of pain and sadness. You mourn, Jesus shows up, and God comforts. Let us learn to grieve, church, ourselves, our friends, our world. And as we grieve, we will find strength. And I bet many of you have found a bit of strength just in this little moment of prayer. There's so much more. Worship team, would you come? Father, please bless this moment. Let us worship a bit. Let us release our darkness and our sadness to you. And oh, Father, carry us. Carry us to our new day. Take the weight of sadness from us and fill us with the joy of the Lord. That we might leave this place today rejoicing in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Pastor Steve.